0: The writer of Psalm 119 says to God, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Father, as your word is preached this morning, we pray that we would taste its sweetness. We pray that we would recognize its goodness for our lives. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. If you've been following the news this week, I'm sure you've seen images from Kabul International Airport in Afghanistan. At the start of the week, crowds of people surged onto the runway of the airport, frantically seeking to secure a place on an outgoing flight before it was too late. In their desperation, some Afghans attempted to cling to the exterior of a U.S. military plane as it Prepared to take off. Video footage then showed two people falling to their deaths from the sky when they were unable to keep holding on. The images from Kabul airport on Monday show people utterly committed to being rescued. Their eagerness to be saved from the incoming Taliban regime was plain to see. What's still unclear is how committed the Western allies will be to saving those Afghans. It's possible the Western powers will successfully evacuate thousands of eligible Afghans, but at this point in time that's where the uncertainty lies. Those who want to be rescued are wholeheartedly committed to that plan, while the commitment of the West to rescuing them is in question. Well, what do current events in Afghanistan have in common with Genesis chapter 20? The answer is that the situation in Genesis 20 is the exact reverse of the situation at that airport in Kabul. In Genesis 20, Abraham shows hardly any commitment to his own salvation. He puts his salvation at risk. Meanwhile, God the Rescuer is unswervingly committed to saving Abraham. In Genesis 20, it's as if God keeps the route to salvation open and accessible, whatever the cost, while Abraham, far from rushing to get on a plane, has to be dragged to the runway, pulled up the steps, and then marched to his salvation seat. God is more committed to Abraham's salvation than Abraham is. There are two phases to what happens in Genesis 20. The title we'll give to the first phase is the promise threatened. The promise threatened. Verse 1 tells us that Abraham has gone to Gerar. Gerar was in the southwestern corner of the land of Canaan. By this time, Abraham was quite well known in some of the other parts of Canaan, but no one in Gerar seems to have known who he was. No one in Gerar knew that Abraham and Sarah were married. I'll read from the end of verse 1. While residing in Gerar as an alien, meaning a foreigner, stranger, Abraham said of his wife Sarah, She is my sister. And King Abimelech of Gerar, sent, that's Bible shorthand for sending men, officials, servants to do something for you. Some translations say he sent men. King Abimelech of Gerar sent and took Sarah. She is my sister. That is what Abraham said. It is indefensible for Abraham to pretend that Sarah is simply his sister and not His wife. And the more we think about it, the more indefensible it will get. But to begin with, it's worth asking why Abraham might want to say that about Sarah. And what in the world would motivate him to do that? We're not the only people asking that question. Later on, when Abimelech has discovered that Sarah is actually Abraham's wife, he says to Abraham in verse 10. What were you thinking of that you did this thing? Abraham's answer by no means excuses his behavior, but it does help us at least get where he's coming from so we're not left completely baffled by his actions. If you look down to verse 11, I'll read from there. Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my, mo- my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, He is my brother. So the key line in that speech is, They will kill me because of my wife. That possibility haunted Abraham wherever he and Sarah went. Abraham reasoned that powerful men who wanted Sarah for themselves would quickly dispose of him if he stood in their way as her husband. But if they thought he was Sarah's brother, well, they would be more likely to treat him well. It seems most of the time this let's pretend you're my sister business did not end with Sarah actually having to marry someone else. But that was always a possibility. And if you've been with us throughout this sermon series, you'll remember there has already been one occasion when Sarah was taken off to another man's house to become his wife. That was back in Genesis 12. Abraham and Sarah were in Egypt. And when Pharaoh, king of Egypt, heard of Sarah's great beauty, he forced her to become his wife. I won't go into the story of how Sarah got out of that horrible situation Because the point here is that Abraham knows how risky it is to say, she is my sister. He can't claim, I never thought it would end with Sarah being taken to another man to become his wife. Because he knows that's already happened once before. Ever since Egypt, Abraham has known the risk is real. I expect our first reaction to all this is to be overwhelmed with sympathy for Sarah and filled with anger at Abraham on Sarah's behalf. It's right for us to have that reaction. Abraham initiated a process that he knew could lead to his own wife being forced to sleep with another man. His behavior towards Sarah is inexcusable. But there's an even more serious problem with Abraham's behavior than his mistreatment of Sarah, as serious as that is. Here's the more serious problem, the more profoundly serious problem. God has told Abraham repeatedly that he would have descendants who would become a great nation, a nation that would bless the world. The promise is summarized in Genesis 18 where God says, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. Sarah was part of that promise. God had said to Abraham in chapter 17, I will give you a son by her. Kings will come from her. We know from where we stand in salvation history that one of those kings from Abraham's and Sarah's family tree will be the king of kings, the Messiah, the great savior who offers forgiveness a personal relationship with the creator and never-ending life in the world to come we know that one of those kings from abraham and sarah's family tree will be the king of kings jesus born in bethlehem at the first christmas by pretending sarah is his sister abraham is putting christmas at risk God had promised Abraham shortly before the events of chapter 20, I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. Abraham was expected to live and act in line with that time-sensitive promise. But where's Sarah at the end of verse 2? She's on her way to another man's house because Abraham has said, she's my sister. At the end of verse 2 it looks as if the promise may come to nothing because abraham is not living with god's salvation plan in view where's his commitment to his own eternal salvation it's nowhere to be seen abraham's commitment to his own salvation has gone missing at the worst possible moment as things turn out abimelech never touches sarah but that's no thanks to abraham god has to step in to protect the promise and we'll look at how exactly God does that in the second half of the sermon the point we need to note at this stage is that without God's intervention any child born to Sarah would have been Abimelech's child Abimelech junior without God's intervention there would have been no kings coming from Abraham no child born to Mary in Bethlehem and no Christmas. Abraham was putting Christmas at risk. And of course, that matters not because Abraham was putting stockings filled with gifts at risk and indoor fir trees at risk. No, it matters because he was putting the blessing at risk, the blessing of a saviour who offers forgiveness, relationship with God and eternal life. Abraham's sin teaches us something about salvation. Human beings naturally tend to think we can earn God's approval through our good deeds, our acts of obedience. Even if we get the message that anyone, no matter how wicked, is invited to come to God for salvation, even then our salvation-earning mindset kicks in. We start to think that once you've come to God for salvation, you have to prove yourself to him. You have to prove through your own good deeds that really you deserve to be saved. We start to think that if we miss a good deed here and fall badly short there, God will reject us. But look at the evidence before your eyes in Genesis 20. If human beings have to earn our salvation, then Abraham is doing a disastrous job of that because here in chapter 20, he's committing a sin he's already committed before, a sin that has already got him and his wife into terrible trouble in the past. And this time the sin is even worse because the year has finally come when Sarah will give birth to his son and Abraham is putting it all at risk. Genesis 20 brings to life words we heard in our first Bible reading, the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Abraham by nature is a prisoner of sin. We see it so clearly here in Genesis 20. His deeds show a lack of commitment to his own salvation. Part of the proof that Abraham does not receive salvation as a reward for his good deeds is the lack of good deeds in his life at this critical moment. It's time for us to move on to the next phase of the story, the promise protected, the promise Protected. Let's look down, please, to verse 3. But God... Very reassuring, two words. But God. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, You are about to die because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. I did this in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart. Furthermore, it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then return the man's wife, for he is a prophet and he will pray for you and you shall live But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all that are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. God had promised Abraham and Sarah a son within that same year. And as we've seen throughout the whole of the Abraham narrative, everything hangs on that promise because that son will be the first in a family line leading to Jesus. Now when you look at verses 3 through 8, those verses I've just read, who does all the legwork to protect the promise? It's God. In verse 3, he comes to Abimelech in a dream by night, threatens Abimelech with death because of Sarah, because Abimelech has taken Sarah, a married woman, to be his wife. At the end of the dream, God extends that threat of death beyond Abimelech to all that are yours. Abimelech's kingdom will be destroyed unless he restores Sarah to Abraham. And God was at work even before that dream. God says in verse 6 that he himself had kept Abimelech from sinning. He says he himself had stopped Abimelech from touching Sarah. God doesn't explain how he did that there in verse 6. But if you look down to verse 17, you can see that Abimelech needs healing. So perhaps that's how God stopped Abimelech from touching Sarah. He afflicted Abimelech with some kind of illness or pain. So as soon as Abraham endangered the promise, God went to work to protect the promise. Putting Abimelech on the injured list so he wouldn't go near Sarah, and then giving Abimelech instructions through that frightening dream. While Abraham is neglecting the promise, God is protecting it. Information contained in the Bible is known as revelation. That's the theological term for it, revelation. It's the information God has revealed for our benefit. A big part of revelation is God revealing who he is, what his character is like, so that we can know him better. Through today's passage, we are learning that God is more committed to his salvation plan than humanity is. To return to the example of Afghanistan, it's as if the Western allies had been going out into Kabul, knocking on the doors of eligible Afghans, waking them up from their sleep and driving them to the airport to make sure they get to the military transport planes. The reality in Afghanistan seems far from that right now, but that's God's approach to salvation. While humanity represented by Abraham is neglecting salvation, God is protecting his salvation plan. Here in Genesis 20, we see how necessary it was for God to say, back in Genesis 12, to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. God knew that Abraham wouldn't be in a bubble insulated from any interaction with the outside world and so Abraham would need protecting that's why God had to pledge in advance in Genesis 12 that he would bless the people who blessed Abraham and curse whoever curses him and in today's passage we see the cursing side of that pledge in action according to verses 17 and 18 not only Abimelech but also his whole household are cursed because Abraham's wife has been taken from him Verse 17 says that Abimelech and his wife and his female slaves all need to be healed. Verse 18 says, For the Lord had closed fast all the wounds of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. All of this is necessary to protect Abraham and the salvation plan associated with him. But it wouldn't surprise me if you're feeling rather uneasy about God's methods You might be thinking it's unjust for Abraham to get this kind of VIP salvation treatment at the expense of other people. The more we dig into the details, the more unjust the VIP treatment appears to be. King Abimelech himself points out to God that he truly thought Sarah was Abraham's sister just as he'd been told by both of them. Abimelech says to God, I did this in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands. And God replies in verse 6, Yes, I know. So Abimelech is innocent. Abraham is at fault. When Abraham's deceitfulness has been exposed, even then, Abraham doesn't really eat humble pie as he should. In verse 11, he rudely reveals his first impression of Abimelech's kingdom. He says there is no fear of God at all in this place. Yet he doesn't then acknowledge how wrong he was to think that in light of the exemplary fear of God displayed not only by Abimelech but also by his people as seen at the end of verse 8. The men were very much afraid. That's because of what God has said. Then it gets worse in verse 12 because Abraham tries to hide behind the fact that Sarah is his half sister so what that doesn't take away the much more relevant fact that Sarah is also his wife they've been married for decades in verse 13 Abraham has a go at shifting the blame onto God he says when God caused me to wander from my father's house as if God is the source of all this trouble instead of him Abraham. Abraham's words there in verse 13 echo Adam's outrageous blame shifting in Genesis 3 when he says to God the woman you put here with me she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it From every angle, Abimelech behaves more uprightly and blamelessly than Abraham. It makes us feel uneasy about God's methods. This blessing those who bless unworthy Abraham and cursing those who curse unworthy Abraham, even when they are acting more justly than him. Well, as we consider what seems unjust in this passage, it is important for us to isolate the real problem. The real problem isn't humanity being cursed by God. The real problem if we're thinking about justice. Let's not forget that quote from our first Bible reading. The whole world is a prisoner of sin. Sin is rebellion against God. When we go our way, instead of God's way, which all of us are guilty of doing, we deserve God's righteous punishment, his just punishment. Earlier in Genesis, all the world, apart from Noah and his family, deservedly perished in the flood because of the wickedness of their hearts. So the real problem in terms of justice in Genesis 20 isn't humanity being cursed by God. It is what we deserve. Instead, the real problem is this. How can God give any sinful human the VIP salvation treatment he gives to Abraham? How can God treat undeserving Abraham so well while holding on to his divine justice? The Bible leaves that question unanswered until we see Jesus hanging on a cross. Romans 3 verse 25 says that God demonstrated his justice through Jesus' death because, quote, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Noah, Abraham, Sarah, and all the others given VIP salvation treatment in Old Testament times committed sins. They all committed sins. And those sins have been left unpunished by God. In his justice, God was looking ahead to Jesus' death as the sacrifice of atonement, where all those sins committed beforehand would be punished. So God is not unjust when he deals generously with Abraham, blessing those who bless him, cursing those who curse him. God's not unjust to be gracious to Abraham because God knows his own crucified son would receive the cursing Abraham deserved so that Abraham could justly be blessed. In verse 15, Abraham is given a foretaste of the blessing he will ultimately receive. Abimelech says to him in verse 15, My land is before you. Settle where it pleases you. This is happening, let's remember, in Canaan, God has promised Abraham that he will inherit the whole of the land of Canaan, which would include Abimelech's portion of the land. For now, it's Abimelech who holds that territory. But because of Abimelech's offer in verse 15, Abraham receives freedom to roam. Freedom to settle wherever he wishes. When you go into a a gourmet ice cream parlor, if the staff are in a good mood, they'll give you a little tasting cup to let you try out a flavor before you order an enormous cone full of the stuff. And that tasting cup is tiny compared with the final coneful but it has a purpose it gets you excited about the fullness that's coming your eyes light up and you say yes please that is the one for me abraham's freedom to roam in abimelech's territory is like one of those tiny tasting cups of ice cream hardly anything compared with what's coming, eternal life with God in a wonderfully renovated version of Canaan. But all the same, it must have been sweet for Abraham to hear those words settle where it pleases you. It must have been a welcome foretaste of the much better settling still to come. Once again, we find ourselves marvelling, don't we, at God's goodness to undeserving Abraham, his generosity is based upon Jesus, that cursed, sacrificial victim who would hang on a cross many centuries later. I expect the present-day application of this passage has already started to become clear. God was more committed to Abraham's salvation than Abraham was himself, and the same is true for you. If you're trusting in Jesus, God is more committed to your salvation than you are. Through the undeserved gift of his crucified and risen son, God has provided you with a salvation you could never have earned. Through the gift of his spirit, God keeps renewing your desire to live for him drawing you back to church Sunday by Sunday, prompting you to pray, stirring you to repentance and obedience by his power. If you're trusting in Jesus, God is more committed to your salvation than you are. And if you're not trusting in Jesus, come to him without delay so that you can place your salvation in his care, his committed care. There are two wrong ways to respond to this truth. The first is inattentiveness. We mustn't tell ourselves, you know, there's no need to pay attention to God's salvation instructions. He's on the job. I'll just leave it all to him. Oh, no. Last week, we heard Jesus warning to his disciples, remember Lot's wife. She ignored God's salvation instructions and in doing so she revealed her lack of faith. If God has given you faith in Jesus you can be sure he will keep you believing. There is assurance in the Christian life. God is more committed to your salvation than you are. He will keep you believing but along the way he'll use warnings like Lot's wife, to keep you believing. So God's commitment to your salvation mustn't lead to inattentiveness. And it also shouldn't lead to immorality. We saw earlier how rotten Abraham's conduct is in this passage. His behavior is harmful and shameful. Abraham's actions in Genesis 20 should make us eager to avoid the same pitfalls. That he gets into. God's people should not speak deceitfully. Hiding behind a half-truth. While leaving a much more important truth unsaid. God's people should be world champions. At eating humble pie. When we've done wrong. Instead of trying to shift the blame onto others. Well, if inattentiveness and immorality are wrong ways to respond to Genesis 20, this message that God is more committed to your salvation than you are, what's the right way to respond to Genesis 20? Psalm 103 guides us. In the middle of the psalm, Abraham's descendant, King David, says of God, he does not treat us as our sins deserve. And David finishes Psalm 103 with these words, Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul praise the Lord O oh, my soul sometimes even saved believers can get it into our heads that we've ruined things with God but here we see Abraham acted in a way that put God's entire salvation plan at risk and yet God still kept blessing him because of Jesus God was more committed to Abraham's salvation than Abraham was, and it's the same with me and with you. God's unceasing commitment to your salvation reveals his love for you. And if you find comfort and joy and peace in God's love for you, this love that leads him to be so committed to your salvation that he sends his own son to his death, if you rejoice in God's love, then praise him. Praise the Lord for his commitment to your salvation. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Let's bow our heads and praise him now. Father in heaven, we thank you that when Christmas was at risk. When your salvation plan was at risk, put at risk by humanity, represented by Abraham, you stepped in. You protected your salvation plan. We praise you for doing that. We praise you for sending Jesus to his death on the cross, and raising him from the dead that Abraham's sins and our sins might be justly forgiven because they were punished in Jesus as he died. Father, we pray that you would soften our hearts and open our lips and stir us up so that we praise you as we should for your great love Amen.